It's a real privilege for my wife and I to be here, have a part in this conference. My concern for marriage goes back quite a few years. Remember my first pastorate, I was rather shocked to discover that one of my elders was a divorced man, and I knew there was some unrest with that in the church. Later, I became a missionary in Latin America and I bumped into real marriage entanglements in Colombia. We had in Colombia what was called the unbaptizables. The unbaptizables in your church? <laughs> well, in Colombia, there's no divorce and there's common law, which is rampant. And um, when people come to know Christ, they bring tremendous tangles related to their marriage. We went on to Peru, and as we saw large numbers coming to know Christ in Peru, they brought a lot of baggage. A lot of that baggage had to do with their marriages. One day a man came to me and he said to me, uh, Don Arnoldo, I want you to tell me if I'm married or not married. <laughs> he said, um, I knew I was supposed to be married by the civil law and then go to the Catholic priest to be officially married by the church. But I lied to the priest that I had been married civilly, and I wasn't. My marriage fell apart in two years. I became a Christian six months ago. Am I married or am I not? So those kinds of questions uh, spurred my interest in the subject of marriage. And so I've been uh, studying this for some years, and um, actually did my uh, doctoral thesis on this at Fuller Seminary. I was telling somebody that uh, I did my doctoral thesis on the subject of marital problems in Latin America, of which there are many, as our brother Swindoll well knows, and his wife. And I wrote my little thesis, graduated in 1979, and I had never moved that thesis off my shelf because I no longer agree with myself. That's what culture will do to you. Culture is a very slippery foe. And it works in very subtle ways. And I felt I had I'd been pushed around too much by culture. So that thesis is going nowhere <laughs> uh, because of that. Well, my wife and I were settled in for a nice marriage in Richmond Saturday in Toronto a few years ago. You know, those one-day shots on marriage. And the format usually is a dynamic couple who's about 35 years old come and they t speak about how they have developed a very dynamic marriage. And here are the seven points that will work for anybody. You know those kind of weekends or those kinds of Saturdays in Richmond. We were stepping in, and the only thing that was different about this one was that the speaker was not a dynamic 35-year-old. He was a 65-year-old professor from the seminary. And he started off by saying, well, let's see if we can find a good marriage in the Bible. So he starts in in Genesis and works his way through to the middle of the book. He said, well, we haven't found a good marriage yet. What is God up to? And when you started in the second half of the Old Testament, and well, we had a little bit of encouragement with the Song of Solomon, uh, how we interpret that, well, it's good news or bad news, I'm not sure. <laughs> But we worked our way through to Malachi. He said, we haven't found a good marriage yet. 
went to the New Testament, and he concluded that there weren't a lot of case studies or marriages that really highlight in the New Testament. We get a passing glimpse of, glimpse of Peter's marriage and his sick mother-in-law. Paul leaves us wondering about his status. But there's a lot in the New Testament about the analogy of marriage as it relates to Christ and his church, which we'll hear about in the next session. And so at the end of this quick tour of the Bible, looking for a good marriage, his conclusion was, what is God up to? And he said, suggested three things. Marriage, the most difficult of all human relationships, is designed by God as a way to know God, as a way to learn how to pray, and as a way to grow up. That was the three sessions on marriage that day, which left a lot of people wondering wasn't what they had come to hear, but was probably close to the truth. Well, marriage. Over in the book of First uh, Peter, just want to take you there. It's a beginning point. <clears throat> in First Peter, we uh, hear the word of the Lord through Peter in verse. 14 and 15, chapter 1, where he says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be you also holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. God's call to his people, to us, is to become holy. But the call of the culture to our people is happiness. And happiness and holiness are on a collision course. And this is what is really, in a summary statement, what has happened to marriage. We have backed away from holiness, and we have given ourselves to happiness. And it's ended up being a hell on earth in many situations. Just notice, for example, in the rest of um, Peter, uh, Peter talks uh, this same epistle. He talks about, um, in chapter 2, about submitting to uh, God in government, submitting to God in business. Chapter 3, submitting to God in marriage. And then over there to chapter 4, it talks about commands and suffering and the whole matter of uh, conduct and suffering, submitting ourselves to suffering. And all of this reminds us that becoming holy is a matter of submitting yourselves to God and to others and to this very difficult relationship called marriage. And because we have gone in search of happiness and not holiness, we have bypassed and we have short-circuited God's, uh, one of God's major ways of making us into holy people. 
That is the basis of uh, our problems. Well, I want to uh, talk tonight in uh, the few minutes I have just a little bit of an overview of what has happened to marriage. But I want to remind you that it's all about Scripture. Dr. Webb has done us all great favor in his exegesis and uh, throughout the Bible, this issue of marriage for life. But uh, let's just turn for a moment to um, a couple of passages that um, talk about the uh, inspiration of Scripture. Second Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. <coughs> These very familiar verses here. Actually, chapter 3, 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. <clears throat> There's uh, one key passage, and then First Peter, or rather Second Peter, chapter one. Second Peter, chapter one. <clears throat> We read these verses. We also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as the light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, there is no prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they moved by the Holy Spirit. Those are some of the basic scriptures for our view of scripture. Back there in the table by my books, you'll find some uh, doctrinal statements of scripture, very detailed. If I were starting a denomination or an organization, I would form my doctrinal statement differently than it is formed in my denomination. Our denomination makes a positive statement of what we believe about Scripture, what we believe about God, what we believe about eternity, etc., etc. But the better way to do it is make a positive statement and then underneath that state it in a negative way what we do not need, what we do not believe. Because often when you're hiring people to join your organization. They'll read your doctoral statement and say, well, that's not quite the way I believe, but I can live with that. But when you express it in a negative way as well, this does not believe this, that catches them. Because a lot of people are very adept at um, submitting to doctoral statements found in leadership. Well, whatever happened to marriage? As I was growing up, in the uh, southern Ontario, in Canada, I can only recall ever hearing during my teenage years of one divorced couple. And that particular couple and that happening was a scandal in our community. We've come all the way from that over 60 years to today, and divorce, of course, is in your family, it's among my siblings. 
It is rampant everywhere. And the culprit is, as Dr. Webb's book makes very clear, it's not so much the divorce, it's the remarrying of people that is making this an academic epidemic among us. Well, that is what has happened. <clears throat> now, I'm attempting here a real fast overview of this whole subject and to try to explain what has happened in this 20th century especially. Dr. Webb's book reminds us that there were only four kinds of views on marriage for the first 1,500 years, and none of them permitted divorce and remarriage. And then he talks there about Erasmus, who came into the picture there in the 16th century, the humanist who got involved. He had a book called the Greek New Testament out. He was a very skilled individual, but a humanist. And uh, he's the one who first raised the question of the exception clause of Matthew and uh, 1 Corinthians, which has now become the, uh, I would say, has become the basic position of the evangelical church with few exceptions. That's how far we've come. Well, it's rather embarrassing to see that a church was born in the 16th century over the issue of marriage as well, with the help of Erasmus. And 18-year uh, marriage was annulled for, for um, King, Ed, King Henry VIII, and um, out of that came a church. The church in England became the church of England. So this is what has happened in uh, that chunk of history. Coming down to the uh, 20th century, the 20th century has really been it seems a time when this has really uh, been rampant. It's just gone out of control, this whole matter of uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage. And the victim of all this, in my estimation, is um, culture. Culture. Uh, culture is a very subtle enemy, and it works by increments. You don't just wake up some day and say, well, I no longer believe the Bible. You come to that through a period of time, and little by little. In Spanish, we talk about poco a poco, se va lejos. Little by little, you go, you go along peace. And uh, my uh, study of the whole matter of historical drift, what happens to organizations over time, how they drift away from core values, how they drift away from truth and God's truth, that does not happen rapidly. But it happens over time, little by little, until one day we wake up and we discover we no longer have a high view of Scripture. We no longer believe in the, uh, uh, the, the lasting aspects of marriage. Little by little, we've been eroded by culture, a very, very subtle enemy. Well, this uh, all started uh, back there in Edinburgh, 1910. We had a big missionary conference which was convened not on basis of Scripture, in the high view of Scripture, but it was convened on the basis of fellowship. And that conference of church or mission leaders all over the world, with the exception of Latin America, that, in the estimation of some, has become the forerunner of the World Council of Churches formed in 1948 in Amsterdam. 
because there was a weak, weak view of Scripture in that conference. I've given you a little handout there so you know where I'm going. You'll also know that if I don't get there tonight, I may pick up some of this in my seminar, but uh, time is limited. But um, the uh, next thing I want to mention is the fighting fundamentalists of the 1920s. Nobody feels too comfortable today with being called a fundamentalist, although I'm more and more inclined to be impressed by them than I used to be, because they were standing for five fundamental truths. They were standing for the whole matter of the um, <coughs> inerrancy of Scripture was one of them. And they were standing also for um, the matter of the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ. They were standing for the body resurrection of Christ. They were fighting for salvation through faith alone. And they were fighting also for the visible return of Jesus Christ. Is there any one of those five fundamentalists or five fundamentals that we could eliminate today because we are more educated, we are more cultured, we are more progressive? All five of those are absolutely essential for today. And we need to keep fighting for them because the liberals today are just as powerful as they were back in the 1920s. Those are the things that we're they fought for, and thank God for those fundamentalists. I also mentioned here the women going into the workplace in the Second World War, 1940s. We can't blame that on the women. We can blame that on war, on culture. But that was the spot where the, where the um, militant feminist movement took off and was fed greatly by the fact that women were now released from their homes and in the workplace. And in my estimation, they have never returned to their workplace. I thank God that there are still couples who will pay the price of keeping mother at home during those uh, growing up years of our children, which is our case. The battle for the Bible, Fuller Seminary. I'm going to be saying some things about Fuller here, and uh, I say it as a Fuller grad. Sometimes say I went to the School World Mission in Pasadena, California. Just got to eliminate the word Fuller from my resume because the Fuller Seminary has become very liberal in their theology, in their school of theology. And in the 1960s, they had a debate. Charles Fuller, how many can remember Charles Fuller, the old-fashioned revival hour? How about Honey, who read the letters? Don't forget Honey. Well, he left a legacy of three organizations. Left a radio program, left an evangelistic organization, and left a seminary. Only one remains, the seminary, which has now grown to be one of the largest seminaries in North America, with all the extensions. But in the 1960s, there was a major debate because there, his only son, Dan, went off to Germany to study and studied uh, with the German theologians and came back and uh, seemed to be the same man until one day in a faculty meeting he confessed that he could no longer believe and blame all the problems of the uh, errors in the Bible on the copyists. In other words, he was backing off on inerrancy. And that was a major bombshell in that faculty. And they debated that all during the 
decade of the 60s, in the 70s, under new leadership at the seminary, they changed their doctrinal statements to not only not to believe now in the errancy of Scripture, but to believe in the authority of Scripture. And you say, well, that sounds pretty good. It sounds good to one of the professors who writes a book, the first major book on the women in ministry issue, entitled Man, Male, and Female. And in that book, he talks about how you interpret Paul in 1 Corinthians and, and in uh, the Apostle Epistles. And he says this, when you're reading Paul, you have to ask yourself the question, is Paul writing here as an inspired apostle? Or is he writing here as a Jewish rabbi? Can you do that as you read your Bible? Break up what is inspired, what is not inspired? And that's what authority of Scripture looks like. It's overall authority, but some passages are more inspired than other passages. And that's what happens to Christians who buy into authority versus inerrancy. Well, that all happened in the 1970s, 60s and 70s. And then, um, <clears throat> we'll skip over the church growth one here for sake of time. A beautiful Trojan horse entered into this whole issue in 1970s. And that Trojan horse was the whole question and the whole debate on women in ministry. Uh, I know that was a debate because in our denomination, we spent 18 years debating that, 1982 to year 2000. And came up in 2000 by passing the whole thing back to the local church to decide, because we couldn't decide. That's not strong leadership in my estimation. But that subject of... Um, I call it the Trojan horse because who wants to be against ministry of women? I certainly don't want to be. At the same time, I want to be true to the scriptures. I want to understand why God gave leadership to men throughout the scriptures. It has nothing whatsoever to do with equality, everything to do with roles. And the roles and equality are all mixed up in this debate. That debate has gone on in all denominations. Because what happened in that discussion, as happens in the marriage discussion, all these discussions, is a hermeneutical issue that Dr. Webb very clearly teaches on in his book. What happens is, on the women's issue, they take the clear facts of history that Christ chose 12 men, ignore that, and they go to other passages of scriptures they try to figure out whether Hunius was the, uh, an apostle in the New Testament, or if she was a man or a woman or whatever, and um, different other exceptions in the Old Testament where a woman had leadership. And they take the unclear passages, reinterpret them, and try to confront and reject the clear passages. And that is the great a uh, problem of hermeneutics, which has arisen growing out of that uh, women in ministry issue. Sad to have it happen for such a wonderful cause. But um, that's what happened. Well, I um, want to mention here a little bit about 
the matter of the great disaster of the 1980s. Here's a book here by a man who stood for truth and for scripture. Evangelical Disaster, Francis Schaeffer. This is about the last book he wrote, 1984. And he was championing the charge or the cause of, of the unborn. Abortion was his great cause. The sanctity of life. But we're talking here about the sanctity of marriage. And coming down the pike is the sanctity of sexuality. And all these are coming at us. And the hermeneutic we use for one applies to the other. So this is um, what happened in the 1980s. Uh, the great evangelical disaster. And what um, our friend Francis Schaeffer was trying to say to us was, he was trying to say to us, the great danger is the accommodation of Scripture to culture. Culture is working on us, putting pressure on us. And the danger is that leaders will not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, will give and will yield to the pressure of culture. And that's what's happened. That's what happened with abortion, euthanasia, and uh, even with, uh, has happened with marriage on a constant basis. Pressure from the society, culture moving in on top of us. Well, I must hurry on here. The challenge of leadership to stop drift is appalling to me as a Canadian that in 19... 65, same-sex couples had to dance in, secrety, in, in, in secret in Toronto to avoid the police, 1965. By 1976, they had their first public community center. By 1992, spousal benefits would be given to the deceased of um, same-sex unions. By the year 2005, last year, if you can believe it, our government approved changing the definition of marriage to include same-sex couples. Join Belgium and Holland and a few other places. All of that happened in a space of 40 years. What was behind that? Pressure from culture. Pressure from culture. The great enemy. Accommodating scripture to culture. Um, John Spung, who was a very uh, well-known liberal from New Jersey, was on a debating on a panel discussing Scripture. And he made the statement, I have a very high view of Scripture. Pause. But no way can a book written many thousand years ago speak to a, such, such a complicated subject as homosexuality in the 21st century. Uh, how can somebody agree to these kinds of things and uh, pass over the 12 clear references to homosexuality, condemning it in the New Testament? Well, the answer is very simple. It's a little phrase which says, time and place specific. Not for today. Not for today. And that's what happens with all these issues. Uh, time and place specific. It was 
What God said in that day, but no longer applies to this day. The Bible is no longer relevant in these kinds of areas. And I would just ask you as we wind this up tonight, uh, how um, active is your view of Scripture? In other words, how often have you in recent times read something in Scripture and said, yes, God's saying that to me today. I must act in this today. Well, when I ask myself that question, I'm a little bit embarrassed. It's been a while. And what we're saying by not taking Scripture literally in many areas is we're saying it's time and place specific, not for us today. And on this divorce issue, remarriage issue, all of this comes into play. Well, I must wrap this up um, and let the next uh, speaker get to us. Some of you may think this is a pretty radical conference. This is a pretty radical view that um, we're buying into. When I hear that, I think of a John Wesley, one of my favorites. And he said, some truth has been buried for such a long time that when it is discovered and expressed, it sounds like heresy. And that certainly applies to this issue of uh, marriage for life and um, no marriage of divorced people. It is radical, but we have seen the terrible destruction of marriage breakup in our time. Well, is there any hope? Yes, there is. As you listen to these speakers in these days, coming from different parts of the world, all agreed on this one subject. That should encourage all of us that people are beginning to think biblically again about marriage. We also be encouraged by the worldwide church of God. Remember that one? Armstrong, son, in the middle of the 1980s, the Armstrongs had died or moved on to, off the scene. Dr. Joseph DeChuck was the new leader. And with his committee, he, they decided they would do an uh, evaluation of their doctrine. And every pastor was asked to take his Bible, lay it alongside the doctors of that um, Worldwide Church of God, a cult, and see if these, these doctrines lined up with Scripture. And if they didn't, they were going to drop them. Well, one young pastor I talked to from Ottawa, his name was actually Armstrong, he said, I got that mandate, and I had a terrible time doing it. I couldn't get my head around it. And finally, I went to an older pastor. He said, this is what you do. You go out and buy yourself a brand new Bible with no notes in it, bring it back, and lay it down beside these doctrines and check them out with the Bible and see if they square with Scripture. And he said, finally, I got through it. But that organization has today been turned around. They've lost half their membership. They've shut down one of their colleges, Ambassador College, Pasadena. But they've moved ahead. And a church historian from Toronto says, as far as he knows, there's never been a, a group, it's not much of a cult, who has turned back to full evangelical orthodoxy in the history of the church. That should encourage us. 
That's to encourage us. One more encouragement, this women's issue, this massive confusion over um, equality and roles. Some man put together a book, John Piper and Gruden. Uh, it was called Restoring Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And that battle still goes on, but there's an organization today that is championing the conservative cause on that whole issue. Well, what's my counsel? Hope to have some more for you Sunday morning, but for now, we need to see God move in revival. It's more than having a proper statement of Scripture. We can have the most proper statement of Scripture, positively expressed and negatively expressed, yet still go on our merry way and not pay attention to it. We need to get back to the Bible, mentally, academically, and also with a heart commitment, which will only come if we allow God to do a work of revival in us personally, which will lead to an awakening in our community, and then beyond that, a restoration, reformation in the evangelical church. May God help us. Amen.